Good morning and welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. This week we have the privilege of starting the second book of the Torah, the second book of Chumash, the book of and the Parsha of Shemos. I want to thank our generous Parsha series sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of David Grossman, Lila Nishmas, David Ben Menachem, Manash. This morning's shir is also sponsored by Marilyn Stein in memory of Stephen Stein, by Cindy and Avi Schreier and family, Lila Nishmas, Dovber Ben Aaron Halevi, Geto Mindel Bas Avram, Eliezer Tzvi Ben Avram, for the Rafur Shleim of Chaya Esther Bas, Chaya Esther Tzila Bas Ariel Tzipora. Also, I want to just mention as we begin this Motzei Shabbos, for those who don't live on the circle, if you're on the circle of the Shabbos, we have the privilege of hosting Rabbi Hauer, my good friend Rabbi Hauer, the head of the OU. This Motzei Shabbos at 8.30 p.m., we're having a Malava Malka with Rabbi Pesach Kron, the great Magid, the great author, the great speaker, the great Mal. So wherever you live, you can make it on Motzei Shabbos, 8.30 p.m., no charge, together with the Torah Umasora, a Shabbos of Chinuch. So join us 8.30 this Motzei Shabbos. Page 292 in the Yorth Scroll Stone Chumash, we begin the book of Shemos. Ve'ele Shemos b'nei Yisrael, haba'im Mitzrayim ha'es Yaakov, ish uveso ba'u. These are the names of the children of the Jewish people, haba'im, who are coming. Note an anomaly in the Pasuk. We spoke about it last year, so I won't repeat it, other than to point it out, to either make you feel bad about your memory, or make you curious to go look it up, whatever the case may be. But note, we shift and we switch from haba'im, which means... What tense is Habaim? Habaim is hoves, coming, is present tense. Asher ubeso ba'u. What tense is ba'u? They came, the past tense. Why do we shift from the present tense to the past tense? I leave that to you to explore. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, we enumerate, we mention all of these 70. Vayikol nefesh yotzei erech Yaakov, shivim nafesh, v'yosef haya b'mitzrayim. They were 70 in total, and Yosef was in Mitzrayim. The Yosef Hayab in Mitzrayim. So let's start out with a insight by Revolba, by the great Revolba. And Yosef was in Mitzrayim. Why is that curious? And Yosef is in Mitzrayim. Yeah, pretty sure I know. Pretty sure we just read many parshios in which we saw the story of Yosef where? In Mitzrayim. So all 70 of them were in Mitzrayim. This whole book is beginning by telling us about their descent, about how they arrived, about where they were, about the servitude, the oppression, the persecution, the slavery, the subjugation. They were all in Mitzrayim. Why single out Yosef? And why do we have to be told where Yosef is? We know where Yosef is. Yosef is where? He's in Mitzrayim. So why do we begin with that? So Rashi tells us, look at Rashi. Yosef, I have in Mitzrayim. V'alohu banav hayu b'chlal shivim. Uma balalam denu. Says Rashi, the text, the Torah is telling us the righteousness, the greatness of Yosef. Who Yosef Aroes son Aviv, who Yosef This is the same exact Yosef. The Yosef who was the shepherd out in the field, and the Yosef who rise to greatness, the greatest Jewish influencer of his time, the second, the viceroy of all of Egypt the finance minister who saved the economy of the world, the same Yosef who was anonymous, the same Yosef who was invisible, the same Yosef with humility who spent his time with the little sheepalach in the field, he never changed. He never grew arrogant. It never got to his head. He's the same Yosef 
the one who rose to gedula, to greatness, the one who rose to power and influence, he never stopped being the exact same Yosef. And on these words, Revolba has a magnificent insight. Revolba has a great insight. Revolba says, it doesn't just mean that Yosef was humble. It doesn't just mean that Yosef never grew arrogant and never went to his head. What it means, says Revolba, is the same Yosef who was the shepherd. How hard is it to be righteous when you're a shepherd? What are you doing all your day if not entertaining a dialogue with the Almighty, with the Divine? A shepherd, it's not a coincidence that our greatest leaders were shepherds. The Zion Roim, we talk about him, we welcome into our sukkah, the seven great shepherds. The shepherds spend their time, his bodhidus, in conversation with Hashem. They're marveling at nature. They're observing Hashem's world. They're in conversation and dialogue with the Divine, with the Almighty. And now Yosef has to try to practice, says Revolba, that same righteousness, not in an environment which is conducive, not out in the field and in nature, not in conversation with Hashem, but now he's trying to balance his profession, his career with his family, with the base medrash. How will he be righteous when he's going to work? How will he be righteous when he's having cabinet meetings? Does he wear his yarmulke to the palace? Does he talk about Hashem? Does he find time to daven? Is he able to squeeze out time to learn? How is Yosef able to manage it all? And that, says Revolba, is what Rashi is telling us, is Yosef's greatness. He's able to balance, he's able to manage it all, not only in the environment and ambiance, which is conducive, but even when he is professionally advanced in his career, he's climbing that corporate ladder, he's still the same Yosef. Lodiat Sidkoso, it's telling us the righteousness of Yosef. To be a tzaddik in your years of yeshiva, to be a tzaddik when you're sitting in Steiging and Kailo, it's not easy, it's hard work. But it's easy. But are you still a tzaddik when you now try to create a synergy between your religious life, your professional life, your personal life, when you're no longer in that cocoon, when you're no longer in that environment? How do you do it? How do you manage it? Are you able to be able to do it? And Revolba suggests, you know how Yosef was able to do it and you know how we're able to do it as well? One word. There's a midah that you need that Yosef had and excelled at. This is an Ali Shor, Sharshani. He talks about Perak Rishon is on the topic of Seder. Seder, order, organization, discipline, Seder. Seder is the secret to life. How do you get it all done? How do you get it all in? How do you live your values and your priorities? How do you stay the same person when you were in yeshiva and the same righteousness, a greater, a different, and in many ways a greater righteousness, even when you're out, is all about the idea of Seder. The author of Kelm said about Seder, you know, in Musser, the author of Kelm said, I must have told you this before because I find myself telling my family often. He said, if you don't push your chair back in at the table, it's the equivalent for the author of Kelm about being Machal Shabbos. If you pull your chair out and you leave your chair a mess, you don't tuck it back into the table like a mensch, like a normal person. Then he, for the author of Kelm, that was as egregious as Chilo Shabbos. It's Chilo Shabbos. Kind of a nice mentor you. You get up in your chair, chairs are strewn all over the room. Now, you didn't tuck it back in. You didn't clear your plate. You don't live organized and with Seder. What kind of a person are you? What kind of a mentor? You can't accomplish anything. So what was the altar of Kelm? Was there mental illness? Was there OCD? Was there obsessive compulsive? Was he? No, the altar of Kelm believed. And he made an incredible comparison. And we're not speaking lightly of those syndromes, but the altar of Kelm was not suffering from it. He simply valued Seder to be able to get anything done in life. He said, Seder is like the string of a pearl necklace. 
What's more valuable, the pearls or the string? The string is negligible. The string is nothing. String costs pennies. The pearls, depending how much the person who loves you is willing to spend, but the pearls, the pearls are worth a lot. And yet, without the string, the pearls are all over the floor. You lose the pearls. What makes it a necklace? What gives it its beauty? What organizes those pearls? The string. So Seder being organized, being obsessed with being organized, organization is not the supreme value. Learning and living a righteous life and balancing career and family and that, all of those are the pearls of life. Seder is the string which holds them all together and without it, it's all strewn all over the floor. There is no Seder, you have nothing. So he writes Revolba. He writes so beautifully. If you're a greater bardas, if you're smarter, if you're more sophisticated, if you're more disciplined, you're not more disorganized. Your desk doesn't look like a hurricane hit it. You're organized. Your schedule, your desk, your life, your timing. If you're greater, you're more organized. If you want to see greatness, look how organized, look how disciplined the person is. What does their schedule look like? How disciplined are they in observing it? I want to learn the whole Ali Shur with you right now, but it's a Parsha class. Why am I mentioning all of this? We'll skip ahead. All this applies to Yom Yomayim, to everyday life. Fortunate, lucky, blessed, says Revolb, is the person who knows how to live discipline, knows how to be organized. Who doesn't implode and is not chaotic and doesn't waste time and doesn't lose things. And now he gets to why I'm bringing it in. We don't know Yosef is in Mitzrayim. Why does our parsha begin? Why does the Pasuk say, and Yosef was in Mitzrayim? When a person lives with Seder, when they're organized, when they're focused, when they're disciplined, when they maintain priorities, they know how to adapt to different situations. You know how to be righteous in the old world, and you know how to be righteous in your new world. You know how to be righteous in yeshiva or seminary, you know how to be righteous in a working life. You know how to be righteous when it was just you. You know how to be righteous when you balance it with a family. You know how to be righteous at home. You know how to be righteous on vacation. A person who lives with Seder, who's organized and disciplined and focused and has priorities, is able to adapt and able to implement that Seder no matter the surroundings, no matter their circumstance. And that, says Revolva, is what Rashi is telling us and what Rashi is celebrating about, what Rashi is celebrating about Yosef. Who Yosef? The same Yosef, the same righteousness, who was the Ro'etzon, who was in the field in conversation with Hashem, is the same Yosef who is now living in Mitzrayim, who's got a balance being the finance minister, who has to be the finance secretary with everything else. Okay, let's, folk, let's uh, fast forward a little bit. We know that nobody recognizes Yosef. What does it mean they didn't recognize Yosef? We'll come back to the same Yosef. Was it a new Paro? The same Paro, but he failed to continue to feel Akar Satov, gratitude for what Yosef had done. How did that come back? We'll come back to him. But now we know Paro has a plot. He feels threatened. We're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism again. People feel threatened by Jews. It's not a realistic reason. 
It's not appropriate concern, but they feel threatened. Paro was threatened by the population growth and explosion of the Jewish people, and therefore he finds a way. He's going to stop it. How is he going to stop it? They're going to outnumber us. We're going to have a demographic problem. Jews are going to control us. And then we're going to have a problem. So what does he do? No matter how much pressure he put on, the Jews continue to multiply and to grow. He made our life difficult. How did he try to get us to not believe? How did he take away our hopefulness and our positivity? How did he take away our, our sense of uh, a faith that Hashem is going to rescue us? Busyness. He understood that the greatest work, what would be the greatest taskmaster is busyness. Busyness. We live free and clear in the sense that we're not enslaved, but we are suffering under the servitude of busyness. We have no freedom of our mind, no space to think or to just be. We're busy, 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 and that is a form of oppression. And Paro now instructs these two women who are the midwives, who are the ones who are helping Jewish women give birth. If it's a boy, kill him, wipe him out. Paro understood, he intuited, or he saw through his astrology that the savior of the Jewish people is going to be born a man, a boy. And therefore, boys have to be executed. Girls, can live? It's an interesting question. Why do we have to end that sentence? If it's a boy, kill him. And what would you know? What would you know automatically? You don't have to kill the girls. Means that they will live. It sounds like Paro was giving an instruction more than just don't kill the girls. Imbasi va chaya, sustain her, help her live, give her life. Why? What was Paro's interest in sustaining the girls? Second question of the day, I'm not giving an answer. But they saw God, they were God-fearing. They were, said, you know what? We don't answer to Paro. We answer to a higher power. We answer to the Almighty. And God has a greater plan here. And therefore, they didn't listen. They're being... It's reported to Paro. God was very pleased with the Mialdos, that they were continuing the population growth. And because they feared God, God made for them batim, homes. What kind of homes? He awarded them with a big house. Crazy real estate, you can't get a house in the circle, but they were good. They helped deliver children. Hashem helped it with the real estate. Hashem helped them find the house. Is that what it means? Rashi. We're all familiar with the famous Rashi. What does it mean? Vayas lahem batim. What kind of homes? batim. It means that they were the progenitors. They were the mothers. What would descend from them were homes of kahuna, priesthood, levia, and malchus, monarchy, royalty. And these are homes. These are dynasties. These aren't just statuses or identities. They're batim, they're homes. Kuna levia mi Yocheved. Umalchus mi Miriam. Kuna levia descended from Yocheved. Moshe and Aaron were the progenitors of the Kuna and the levia. And from Miriam descended Malchus. Wonders the Megid Yosef or Yosef Surotskin. Vine ke'adu ha'schor shal kodesh borcho nivchar b'kpeida midah k'neged midah. Batam la mitzvah. 
Kaddish Baruch Hu doesn't give random rewards. The rewards that he meets out are measure for measure. The midah keneged midah. They are commensurate. They correspond somehow with the good thing that was done. So here Shifra and Poe, Yocheved and Miriam, they ignore Paro's command with tremendous courage and bravery. They don't listen and put their lives at risk. They answer to a higher power, Hashem, and therefore they continue to deliver children. And in return, Hashem gives them Kahuna Leviya and Malchus. He gives them Batim Vayaslahem Batim. How is that Mida Kineged Mida? How does that correspond? Vishamati Lavari says he heard from Zayda. Even after Paro's Gzeira, the Jewish people would continue to exist. Why? Because Paro said, exterminate the males. Allow the women to live. If the women could live, with whom would they mate? With Mitzrim. Their children would be Jewish. Intermarriage. It's still tragic. A Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man. It is still tragic. We have to do everything we can to educate and to oppose and to love. It's still tragic, but the children, the product of such a marriage would be Jewish. But what would be missing? What would be lost? If there's no Jewish father... The children will all be Jewish, but what status will be lost? Because it's true, the identity of Jew or not Jew follows the mother. But the status, Kohen Levi, follows the father. Follows the father. Similarly, similarly, a convert can't become a king. Someone who has a Jewish mother but a non-Jewish father cannot become a king. A prerequisite to being a Melech Yisrael, to being a Jewish king, is a Jewish father. It's a beautiful insight. It's not just random. Hashem said, oh, what should I pick from my, my prize cabinet? Oh, they did a nice thing. They're continuing to deliver Jewish children. I should give them something. What do I give them? I know. I'll make them progenitors of Kuna, Levi, and Malchus. No. Mida, Keneged, Mida. They would have been Jewish children by virtue of having Jewish mothers. But what would have been lost is the status of Kohen, Levi, and Malchus, and Melech. Because they continued to ensure the birth of Jewish males. And therefore, they ensured the continuity of Kuna, Levi, and Malchus. Vayaslam, Batim. That's what they were given. So now that's from the Zayda, Suratkin. But now the Megid Yosef of Yosef Suratkin says, I want to give another suggestion. What impressed Hashem the most was not that they risked their lives for the continuity of the people, was the geschmack, the joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that they got through that accomplishment. Through that accomplishment. They weren't thinking about the reward. 
They weren't thinking about what they would get out of it. When they saw, look what's happening. It's amazing. You know, a person who founds a yeshiva, a person who adds minyanam to a shul, a person who starts a chesed program, a chesed committee, a person who doesn't say to themselves, you know, maybe now I'll win the mega millions tonight. I did something good. I organized a Tomchei Shabbos. I started a Shirach Initiative. We founded a yeshiva. We've expanded the minyanim and the learning opportunities. We have a new kolo. So maybe now I'll get a reward. Maybe now I'll win the mega millions, 1.1 billion, who's counting? Maybe now I'll win. Person says, do you see how many people are sitting and learning in this yeshiva? Do you see the shidduchim we've accomplished and we've made? Do you see the chesed that we've done, how many people have food on their table? That's all the schar I need. Hashem loved about them that they weren't looking for any extraneous outside reward. The reward was the result of the good they had done. He said to himself, I'm not going to give them Kuna Levi and Malchus as a reward, but who do I want to be the mother, the progenitors of leadership? I want leaders who aren't looking for outside reward. I want leaders who will derive reward internally, who will be satisfied from the good that they've done. The criteria, the number one, the number one characteristic of an effective leader that Hashem wants is the leader who's not looking for personal reward, who doesn't want to get anything out of it themselves, is not looking for honor and recognition. Rather, their whole aim, all they want is the good for the people and the satisfaction they get from it. Shifra and Pua who showed this, they were the perfect DNA. They were the perfect people from whom to descend such leaders. And you see that. And I have to tell you, in leadership, there's enormous reward. Baruch Hashem, people say beautiful things and treat you beautifully. There's also a lot of heartache, a fair amount of heartache. And there are leaders, there are machanchem and rabbonim, and there are committee leaders who people don't recognize and people don't thank them. It's a thankless job. But you know what? You need to go into it knowing that it's a thankless job. Shifra and Pua didn't look for thanks. The satisfaction and their happiness came simply from seeing the good that they did. And that is a prerequisite to leadership. If you're going to go into it for the reward or the thanks, choose another career. Make a lane change. Make a lane change. Baruch Hashem, I get an enormous amount of thanks and positive feedback and I have the best job and the best people and I'm good. But there are many, many who struggle that they do and they work and they toil and they sacrifice enormously and it's thankless. Gabayim, for example. Gabayim don't get paid a penny. And is there a more thankless job than being a gabay? When is the last time anyone walked over to a gabay and said, I, want to get, I haven't gotten an aliyah in forever. You forgot my mother's yurit site. But I want to thank you because you don't get paid for this. All you get is grief and aggravation for it. And I don't want to do it. And I'm so grateful you are. Thank you. When is the last time someone said thank you to a gabay? It's a thankless job. But don't go into a gabay because you think you're going to be thanked. Be a gabay because you see the geschmack, 
the bar mitzvah boy and the family. You see how you got all the Yeritzites in, even though there were so many, how you figured out the whole stuff. Go into it because you put a smile on someone's face and that's enough for you. Vayas lahem batim. Shifra and Pua didn't look for anything else. Hashem said, that's the DNA we need in leadership. Vayas lahem batim. Kuna, Levi, and Malchus should descend from them. So two pshat and the Zayda, because they saved. By saving the boys, they saved Kuna, Levi, and Malchus. Or his pshat, they had the DNA of leadership. That's what he wanted. Perek Beis, Pasuk Aleph. Fast forward. Vayelech Yishmi Beis Levi. Now we have our story. Wah. Sefer Shmos. What a story. We know it. We've read it. And it's still exciting each time. Vayelech Yishmi Beis Levi. Vayikach Es Bas Levi. Someone went from the home of Levi and married someone who was a Bas Levi. Okay. What's with the mystery? We can't use their names. And that's a particularly compelling question. Why? Because we're going to get to their names. And after all, isn't names what the book's all about? It's called the book of names. And why did they merit redemption? Because they maintained their names. And the first psukim began by listing the names of all the tribes. And so we're so focused on names. And yet here, the mother and father of the one who will emerge to be Rabbeinu, we can't know their names. And Vayikach is Bas Levi. Revolba number two of the day. Says Revolba. Very interesting insight. Why does the Torah not tell us? The Gemara in Psachim, Nundalad, Ahmed Beis, the Gemara there tells us seven things are hidden from people. Seven things are hidden from people, one of which is the day of redemption. When will HaKadosh Baruch Hu bring this to an end? The anti Semitism, the oppression, the illness, the suffering. When will it all come to an end? The Gemara says, we don't get to know that day. We can't mark it on our calendar. There is no save the date in the weekly for the day of Geula. Redemption originates from the higher worlds. It comes from a place that we don't have access to, that we don't understand. Matters concerning the redemption, their nature is mysterious. They're cloaked and clouded in mystery. They are a secret. Yaakov wanted to reveal the Kates. Kodesh Baruch took away from him all of his Ruach HaKodesh. These things must remain mysterious and secrets. And the birth of the Goel Yisrael, the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu, who would redeem the Jewish people, was also clouded in secrecy. And until that day, until the redemption materializes, the Torah doesn't even want to give the name of his parents. In other words, even the seeds, even the very beginning of the process of redemption is cloaked in mystery. We don't even get their names. We don't know who they are. It's anonymous. And it can help us understand another Pasuk. After he smites the Egyptian, he strikes the Egyptian, Moshe saw a Jew about to hit his fellow Jew, and he chastised him. And he says, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And the Pasuk says, why did Moshe say that? Perek Beis, Pasuk Yud Dalad. Why did Moshe say that? And what was Moshe's fear? Achein noda hadavar. Moshe says to himself, uh-oh, do they know? Is the matter known? What's the matter he was worried about that would be known? So Rashi says, The simple thing is, do they know about me what I've already done? But the second Midrash, Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid, says Rashi, that Bnei Yisrael might not be worthy of redemption. Why? Because there were, there were malshinim. There were gossip mongers. 
There are people who love to whisper and tell secrets. There are people who are sharing things that should remain a secret. You know what the Jewish idea of a secret is? Something you tell people one by one. That's the Jewish definition of a secret. But that's a bad secret. Secrets are not shared one by one rather than in groups. Secrets are kept to yourself. Secrets are meant to be kept in confidence. And when you gossip and you share and you chirp, gossip mongers, they thwart, they prevent, they're obstacles to the geula, to the redemption. Why? Because the whole nature of, nature of redemption is it's a secret until it happens. It's mysterious. We do what we're supposed to do. We behave the way we're meant to behave and it will come about. But don't whisper, don't talk. The moment you do that and you shine a light on it and you bring attention to it, in fact, you prevent it. Shemosha had wondered why specifically the Jews were subject to Gullus and now the reason became known because they couldn't keep a secret, because they were gossiping, because they were sharing. The Jewish people's uniqueness comes from Pnimius and the others are focused on Chitzonius. So Pnimi, keeping a secret inside, Bifnim, Pnimi, is a reflection of the capacity for Pnimius. That, that capacity to focus and maintain and learn Pnimius, preserve our uniqueness as a nation, to keep those secrets is necessary for Geula. So to hint, to allude to that, this parsha that begins the story, the birth of the Redeemer, begins with mystery. Begins with mystery. And the mystery of Vayelech Ish Mibes Levi, Vayikach Bas Levi. We don't know their name. We'll be given their names in due time. The narrative will alert us to their identity, to the story. But the beginning, it's mysterious. Because that's the nature of Geula, is it has to be mysterious. Chavetz Chaim has a different insight. Chavetz Chaim. Says the Chavetz Chaim, in the Chavetz Chaim Ala Torah, Rashi. First he tells us Rashi. Perush Hayamimenu, Parush Hayamimena, B'mnegzeres Paro, V'chazar V'lakcha. He separated himself from her, Amram from Yocheved, because of the Gzeira of Paro. And then he went back and took her back. Vayik Vayelech, he went, Vayikach. Vayelech, he separated, he was parish from her. And then Vayikach, he went and he reacquired her, he remarried her. Why did he separate? Why did he abstain? Why did he leave her? Because he said to himself, who could bring children into such a world? Look at these conditions. Look at the Jews are targeted. It's cruel. It's harsh. I can never bring a child into such a world. I know people who think like this. I have a relative who suffered terribly in his childhood and life. And because of his own suffering and his own personal story and narrative, he projects it into saying, I know what I went through and how I suffered. I could never do that unto someone else. I don't want to bring a child into such a world. But that's a reflection, that's an outgrowth of an attitude of pessimism. That the world is not a place that's worth bringing children into. Who was the one who encouraged him positively? Who got him to remarry her mother? Miriam. Miriam says, Abba, Tati, Dad, I don't know what she called him. She says, what are you doing? You're worse than Paro. Paro said, no boys. But by you separating and leaving mom, not only are you preventing no boys, but you're also bringing about no. You're worse than Paro. What are you doing? And he's compelled. And he listens to her advice. And he remarries. And he takes that risk. He takes that risk. It is the greatest affirmation in our belief in Hashem when we bring children into such a world. 
When was the biggest Jewish population explosion? In the DP camps after the war. The Jewish population explosion after the Holocaust was enormous. Many in this room are only here because of it. Skin and bones, skeletons, people who had survived the worst atrocity in the history had every right to say, Genuk, we're done, we're finished, we survived, we're going to live it out ourselves. It'll be what it'll be. I'm going to bring children into a, war where this can, into a world where this can happen again. I should bring children into a world only for them to be rounded up and put in a ghetto, to be deported to a concentration camp, to be put into a gas chamber, a crematorium. For that, I should bring children into the world. But they didn't say that. They didn't say that. They said, I have faith and I believe this world is yet worth bringing children into. I'm going to build communities. I'm going to build shuls. I'm going to build seminaries. I'm going to build mikvos. I'm going to build kashras. I'm going to build because this world is a place that will once again, and are we not seeing it now? We're seeing the fulfillment of their optimism, an explosion of Torah learning and Torah growth in Jewish communities and a Torah world which is on fire, which has several problems, but which overwhelmingly is blossoming and flourishing and is only the result of their faith and their optimism and their willingness in that setting and after all that they survived to have children. The Miriams of our world who were willing to do it. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. My children are only here because of it. I'm only here because of it. I reserve the right to tell this story as a Yurtzeit to Russia one time. But my grandparents came over. They lived in Germany after Kristallnacht's store was destroyed. My grandfather was deported. It's a miracle how he returned and they were able to get out. And they came with my aunt who had been born in Germany. But, and that was it. They weren't going to have more children because when well, they survived, one was enough. How are they going to live in the new world? And one night, my grandmother overheard my aunt she was standing by the window, looking out the window, and she was davening to Hashem. She desperately wanted a sibling. And only because she heard my aunt davening, desperately wanting a sibling, she decided she would have one more child who was my father. It's the only reason that I'm here. And my wife, her grandparents, who were each married and lost their spouse and child in the war, survived, had every reason to say, we tried, we had families once, you know, we've done it, what we survived, why are we going to continue? They had, sitting here in the front row, my father-in-law, it's the only reason my wife is here. The only reason my, my children are here and grandchildren are here. We're all the product of their faith, their optimism, their hope, their willingness. Miriam's vision that she said to her father, what are you doing? You got to get back together, bless you. So on that, the Chavetz Chaim al Torah says the following. Amram was no slouch. Amram was no Amoritz. Who was Amram? He was the Godel Ador. He was the greatest of the generation. And yet, he concluded, he decided, with his greatness, with his insight, with his wisdom, with his sagacity, he concluded, Ganuk, we're done. No more children. No more couples. No more intimacy. This is it. How old was Miriam when she advised her father? Like my aunt, she was four years old, a little girl. He heard the advice of a little four-year-old, made a little four-year-old girl, said, I want siblings. And this world is worth bringing children into. And don't be worse than Hitler. Don't be worse than Paro. Don't exterminate the next generation who's not yet even conceived or born. And only because of her vision, only because of 
only because she was compelling to her father, four years old, because of her passion, because of her emotion, only because of what she, the picture she painted for her father, Moshe, my father's Moshe, but Moshe Rabbeinu was born. Chizkiyoh didn't want to have children. He saw that Menashe Amelech, the worst king, was going to descend from him. So Chizkiyoh Amelech listened. Yeshaya Hanavi was critical. He said, what are you doing? Your job is not to worry about the future. Your job is not to worry about the world and the way it will be. You have a job which is continuity. You have a job in the present, not the future. And therefore, he had a child and he gave birth to a Yoshioa Melech. Lo kam kamo v'achrav lo yiyeh, about whom it was said, no one ever rose like him. Said the Chavetz Chaim, Tzarech lulma mikach she'en lena teach es ha'she'elos ha'olos lepitzchano rak pesech v'regesh enoshi. Elach shav ma'aratzon Hashem izbarach me'itanu. Umat ha'otzor she'echos lotzeis mikol ma'isa shano osin levata ratzon v'adatenu ne'eritzoneinu. In every circumstance we have to say not what feels right, not what feels good, not what I want, not what does my emotion tell me to do, but what does Hashem want? What does Hashem want from me right now? Does He want me to give up on this world? Does He want me to live with pessimism? Does He want me to give up my faith? Or does He want me to believe the world is yet worth bringing more people into? What does Hashem want from me? You also see the power of a four-year-old girl, of an innocent, sweet child, who can see with an optimism that her parents had lost and who convinces her parents. He doesn't say this, Chavetz Chaim, but I thought he was going to say something else. Another conclusion I come to from it. Think of how extraordinary not only that Miriam gave that advice, but that Amram listened to it. He heard it. He listened to it. How many of us would pinch the cheek of the four-year-old and say, sweetie, that's cute, that's sweet. I understand where you're coming from. You think that we should, but you don't know what I know. I'm the Gadol Ador. We have committee meetings. We sit and we talk and we discuss and we debate and we deliberate. We're older. We're more experienced. We have more wisdom. It's sweet. You're cute. Pinch the cheek. That's sweet. Here's a candy. Here's a little doll. Go play. We've concluded this world is not worth bringing children into. Amram goes back to the committee. And he says, you know, my daughter raised a good point. We're doing something worse than Paro. We have to believe the world is yet worth bringing children into. We have to believe with faith and optimism and hope that there will be a redemption. It will become a better time. And the people say, your, your daughter? Amram, how old's that daughter again? She's four. <laughs> She's four? says, yeah, but she made a good point. Accept truth from wherever it comes. I think that's a remarkable part of the story we don't necessarily focus on. Not only Miriam's passion, enthusiasm, and sharing that advice, but Amram's willingness to hear it. So they have a child. They listen, they remarry, they have a child. And time comes to put that child in a basket in the river with the hope that he will survive. Miriam opens the basket and she sees she has pity and she recognizes him and she says this is a child from the Ivrim. This is a child from the Ivrim. Uh, sorry. Says the Medrash Bogavriel what happened? Moshe's floating comfortably in the Nile. 
He's floating comfortably in his basket. It's coated. It's comfortable. He's floating down the endless river. He's got his hands behind his head. He's sipping a pina colada. He's happy. He's happy. And the daughter of Miriam, Bisya, I'm sorry, the daughter of Paro, Bisya Basparo, sees him. She sees him. She stretches out her arm. We've discussed in the past the miracle that her arm stretches out. How did she know that would happen? She didn't, but she did it anyway. Again, the faith, the optimism, we have to do our part. Hashem does his. The Medrash says, Gavriel came and pinched Moshe to make him cry. Why? So that she would have pity on him and take him in and bring him to the palace. Ech titachain, Metzius, wonders of Nasan Vachtvogel, the great Mashkiach of Lakewood, the Musmach of Yeshivas Rabbi Yitzchak wonders, how is it, a Metzius, her father is out there. He's got press conferences every day talking about destroying the Jewish people. He's got cabinet meetings every day with the final solution. And she's going to bring home a Jewish child? She knows he's a Jewish child. Right away she recognizes and she says, Is she out of her mind? What made her so moved to take the enormous risk to bring home a Jewish child when her father is consumed by his final solution to get rid of the Jewish people. Said the Mashkiach of Lakewood, the Vachtvogel. It was his tears. Had he been floating in the basket, sipping a pina colada, she would have seen him. She would have kept doing her laps. She said, oh, that's cute. There's a baby. She would have summoned one of her advisors and said, find somebody to watch this baby. What moved her to take this risk? It was his tears. Tears pull and tug on the heartstrings. Tears have the capacity to transform and move people. She came believe the most our tears, our tears can move mountains. Our tears can transform people and decisions. Our tears can pierce the gates of heaven. He doesn't say this, but why does it say the shari, the shari shamayim are not ninalos in front of tears? What does it mean? The gates of heaven are not locked in front of tears. If it's not locked, why do you need gates? The answer is maybe you have gates and maybe they're closed, but what unlocks them are the tears. Heartfelt, authentic, genuine tears. Tears of the capacity to transform, to transform. The Medrash Yalka Shemoni says, Kashem Shalom Pais Yosef is Achiv Ela Bebechi, Kachin Kashborcha goes Ban of Ela Bebechi, Bebechi Yavo, Betachnonim Ovilam. The power of tears, power of tears. I once saw it described, tears are the sweat of the soul. Just like when a person works out, the evidence that you've worked out, that you've engaged your body is sweat, tears are the sweat of the soul. When the soul is engaged, when the soul is moved, you cry. You hear a story that makes you cry. You have a moment of happiness or sadness that makes you cry. Tears are the sweat of the soul. It's the tears that move Bisya and that lead to her risk to be able to save Moshe, which saves the Jewish people, which saves the Jewish people.
Who's the nar? Moshe. Right? That's kind of strange. How old is Moshe? He's a baby. Why we describe him as a nar? So Rashi tells us, nar boche kolo kinar. One of the miracles is that Moshe had a mature voice. He had a deep voice. He sounded like a na'ar, even though he was just a baby. But says the Balaturim, something different. One of my favorite Balaturims, na'ar boche bigamatria ze'aron akoin. It wasn't Moshe who was crying. Reread the Pasuk, says the Balaturim. I love this Balaturim. She opened the basket and she saw the baby. And then she heard, Maybe she didn't hear, but the Torah is describing the scene. She opens the basket and there's a baby. And simultaneously observing that scene of a woman coming to save his brother, hiding behind the tree, watching all along was Aaron Akoin. Who was watching? Aaron Akoin. And why was Aaron Akoin watching? Because he couldn't not watch. When he put his brother in the river, he didn't go home and continue to play the Xbox. He didn't go back to the base medrash and pick up his chavrusa. He didn't go on with life. He didn't go to Starbucks and offer, order his triple latte caramel upside down, backwards, double scoop, whatever. He put his brother in the river and he couldn't tear his eyes away. He just kept watching to see what would happen. So when someone came to save him, and who is that na'ar? Is Aaron. One of the 48 ways the Mishnah Pirkei tells us that Torah is acquired, one of the Memchaz Dvarim, HaTorah Nikneis is, one of the 48 ways is, person has to be nosei ba'olim chavero. The capacity to feel the pain, to lift the burden, to carry the burden of a friend. And we'll see, this is in fact Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest quality. I'm not going to elaborate because we've shared it in the past. But the author of Kelman, our Parsha, says, why was Moshe chosen? Because he's the most humble? No. Most righteous? No. Smartest? No. Greatest speaker? For sure not. Greatest Midos? No. Why was Moshe chosen? Best looking? Most athletic? Most artistic? No, no, no. Why was he chosen? The Medrash tells us when he was a shepherd and one sheep got lost, Moshe could have moved on without him. He had an enormous flock, but he found that sheep. That sheep had deviated, it left course because it was down by a river. It was thirsty, it was tired. So Moshe didn't yell at the sheep. He put the sheep on his shoulders and he carried it back to the flock. He was no say bolem chavero, even for a little sheepala. And that's who he was when he saw the people. Pasuk's going to describe later in our Parsha that Vayar, Moshe's walking. And he stops, Kisar Lir Os. There's a snesha in Nenu Ukal. There's a bush, it's on fire, it's not being consumed. And Moshe stops and he looks. And as we've described previously, it wasn't visible to others. He's the only one who could see it. Did he have special 3D glasses? Everyone could have seen it. It was visible to all. Why didn't they see it? Why didn't they see it? Why is he the only one who sees it? Because they're all walking by and they're texting and they're scrolling and they don't see it. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was a shepherd, who knew how to live in the moment, who knew how to be in conversation with himself, with Hashem, with the world around him. Moshe Rabbeinu, he's not scrolling, he's not texting. Moshe Rabbeinu is actually observing and enjoying his environment. And what does he see? He sees this bush, it's on fire, it's not being consumed. And he turns to look. And the Pasuk says, Kisar 
Liros. He turned to look. Zuck the Medrash Rabba. He didn't turn to look. You know what Kitsar Liros means? Kitsar Liros, Liros, Besivlosam. The Medrash connects the puzzle Kisar Liros. He turned to see with when Moshe is in the palace. He grows up in the palace and he grows up in with prosperity. He grows up with everything a person could want. He grows up in the palace. And yet his brothers and sisters are being tortured and oppressed outside. And what does he do? Vayetze, he goes out of the palace. Why? Liros, Besivlosam. He can't stand to watch from afar. He goes in order to join them and to feel their pain. Liros besivlosam, to see their pain and their burdens. To be no to carry it with him. So says the Medrash, you think Kisar Liros means, why did Hashem make him the leader of the Jewish people? Because Kisar Liros, he stopped to see the bush. That's not why. Kisar Liros, Kisar Liros, Liros besivlosam. He stopped to see their pain. A leader is no se ba'olam chavero. A leader stops to see pain. And that says the altar of Kelm. It wasn't his brilliance. It wasn't his humility. It wasn't his righteousness. It wasn't his kavana when he davened. You know what it was? Kisar liros. He stopped to turn to see. To see what? Liros besivlosam. To feel the pain of a fellow Jew. To feel the pain of another. This is in contrast to Hagar. When Hagar's son Yishmael is thirsty and starving to death, what does Hagar do? She doesn't turn towards, she doesn't turn to look, she turns away. And what does she say? I can't stand to see. I have to look away. It would be too hard for me. She's the opposite of being no Bolam Chavero. It's all about her. Oh, I can't stand, I couldn't bear. How could I see him, my own son? Moshe Rabbeinu goes out of the palace. He can't stand not to see. He can't stand not to intervene. He can't stand not to be with them. And where does he learn this from? Clearly, it's a family trait. Who is crying? Not Moshe. Okay, Rashi says Moshe, he had a mature voice. But according to the Balaturim, because Aaron was watching from behind the tree, he couldn't stand to not look. He couldn't stand to not see. Moshe Rabbeinu grows up, and now we have this confrontation. He sees two Jews who are battling. He says to one, he says to the wicked one, Why are you striking? Why are you hitting your brother? Why are you striking your brother? Says the Megid Yosef, Russia. Moshe is asking him a question. What does he want to know? Why are you hitting your brother? Moshe wants to know why are you hitting your brother? But before he ever gets the answer to that, what does he already call him? A Russia. Russia. He calls out, Hey Russia, why are you hitting your brother? Maybe you should find out who's the Russia, who's the Tzaddik. Maybe he has a good reason, a legitimate reason. Moshe, if you're really curious and you want to know if there's a real question mark at the end of it, not an exclamation point, then maybe you shouldn't be calling him a Russia to begin with. Uvehechrach anuroim, says Rav Suratskin. What you see from here is, He didn't need to wait for the answer to call him a Russia. Why? Ki ein teretz ba'olam ha'matzdik ha'ka'ath yehudi. 
there is no legitimate answer to explain why one would ever be hitting a fellow Jew. Simply seeing one hit a fellow Jew, it was legitimate to call him Russia even before he had an answer. And that's what Chazal say. Call anyone who raises a hand against a fellow Jew is a Russia. Call. There is no legitimate reason. There is no excuse. There's never an explanation or an answer. Call anyone, everyone who raises a hand. There is no question mark at the end. Moshe wasn't asking, why are you hitting a Jew? He says, Russia, you're a Russia. Because how could you ever hit a fellow Jew? So it's an entirely new way of reading this Pasuk. Moshe wasn't asking, waiting for an answer. Moshe was exclaiming, Bitmiya, Russia, just you're raising it. There's never a reason. Says Rav Surotskin, critical of those who call themselves Kanoim, those who with pride describe themselves as Jewish zealots, religious zealots. Chas v'shalom, a Jew is never zealous against another Jew. A Jew never raises a hand against another Jew. You're wrong even if you're right the moment you raise a hand. And therefore Moshe Rabbeinu was in the right in calling out, Russia, lama sakereyecha, not waiting for the answer to the question, but simply declaring, how could you? Okay, now I want to tell you a Dvar Torah I've been trying to tell you for two years. But we never get to this part of the parsha. Oh, I want to tell you a phenomenal Dvar Torah. I still want to tell you a lot more Dvar Torah, but if we get to nothing else, I want to make sure to tell you this Dvar Torah. That comes from our good friend Rav Druk, Shlita. I've been trying to tell it to you for several years. Perak Bey's Pasuk Tezayin. Moshe Rabbeinu goes to the, he has to run to Midian. And in Midian, he goes to the Be'er, to the well. And when he gets to the well, there are women who are the victims of the Me Too movement, of Me Too. There are women who are victims of uh, sexual abuse. The shepherds. And these male shepherds come along and they're abusing them. Moshe saves them, and he's so gentlemanly that he not only saves them and spares them, he then goes above and beyond, and he feeds their flock. They go home to their father. What are you doing home so early? You got a job. You're never home this early. Is everything okay? This Egyptian man, you won't believe it. You know those shepherds who every day, they mutter, they shepherd, they abuse us? Today an Egyptian man showed up, and he was our savior. He rode in on his, with his knight in shining armor, rode in on his horse, and he saved us. He went even further, and he fed our flock. So Ruah says, and where is he? You found such a knight in shining armor? You found such a shidduch? Bring him home. Where is he? The Medrash says on these words, they said, How do they describe Moshe? An Egyptian man saved us. Wonders the Medrash. That's the best description of Moshe? Does he walk like an Egyptian? Does he dress like, does he look like, does he talk like an Egyptian? That's what they thought of Moshe Rabbeinu? What happened? They said, 
Moshe, you saved us. You're amazing. You're incredible. You're my hero. You saved us. You saved us. And Moshe Rabbeinu responds and he says, I didn't save you. You know who saved you? There's a guy in Egypt who saved you. It's an Egyptian man. Egyptian man. Had the Egyptian man save them? Because if not for the Egyptian man who threatened Moshe that made him flee and run to Midian, Moshe never would have been there in that moment. He would have still been in Mitzrayim. Says the Medrash, The Medrash gives a mashal. A person who's bit by a snake, poisonous snake. He runs down to the river to wash out the bite. Benichnas Benari runs in the river and lo and behold, what does he find? There's a baby drowning in the river. And he reaches in and he saves the baby. And the parents of this baby say, we want to give you a reward. If not for you, you saved our baby. Our baby would have drowned. And the man says, I didn't save you. There's a snake that saved you. If not for the snake, I'd still be hiking on the path. I only ran down to the river because I was bit by a snake. That snake saved your baby's life. When they come home and report an Egyptian man saved us, they weren't describing Moshe. They were relaying and they were buying into and tapping into Moshe's emuna in Hashem. Moshe was saying, Hashem always has a master plan. I'm not the one who saved you. Hashem had this confrontation with an Egyptian man. I had to run from him that put me in position to save you. It was the Egyptian man and it was Hashem who put him there that saved you, not me. Says Rav Druk. What, what an amazing medrash. What an amazing medrash. There's so many beautiful parts of the story, but among them, maybe most among them, is that Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't take credit. How many would say, you're right, it was me, but it was my pleasure. Am I a hero? Probably, but you don't have to call me a hero, I don't know. <laughs> but Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm not a hero. I did nothing. The only reason I was here is because of this Ish Mitzri. A Mitzri killed someone else. Moshe Rabbeinu was going to confront him. He had to run from him. Moshe doesn't take the credit, although he could. He redirects them. He redirects them. Thank Hashem. Thank the Mitzri. Now we go back to the beginning of the parasha. And we said, There was a new king, a new paro. And we saw those machlokas. Is it a new king? The same king we didn't remember. Moshe goes out of his way to credit someone who began a chain of events who no one would have expected him to credit. Paro does the opposite. Why is there a healthy economy? Why is there Egyptian empire? Only because of Yosef. And Paro says, I don't know a Yosef. What Yosef? I don't remember a Yosef. You see the exact opposite of the very same quality. 
Paro, who it should have been front and center in his mind, Paro, who in the grand entrance of the palace, there should have been a huge portrait of Yosef, Paro, who everything he is and has, and the sustainability of his whole country is only to be Yosef, absolutely forgets Yosef. And Moshe, would every right to say, am I a hero? Uh, yeah, I'm a hero. Says, hero, what are you talking about? I'm only here because of the Mitzri. Connect this to this, to this, to this, to this. There's a Mitzri who saved your life, not me. This was the quality of Moshe. Moshe was the quintessential Midas Satov. Moshe is unwilling to strike the river or the earth because he has Sakar Satov to both because he was able to bury the person in the in the sand and because the river saved his life. Moshe's whole life is gratitude, creating links, connecting the dots of gratitude. That's our mission and mandate too, to be like Moshe, to connect the dots of gratitude. Moshe Rabbeinu had how many names? 10. And which one do we call him? Not the one his parents gave. Not the one Hashem gave him. Which name do we call him? The one that? Basparo, that Bisi gave. This non-Jewish woman the daughter of the, of the villain. That's the name that we use. You know why? Hakarasatov. The name Moshe is because she saved him from the water, which means in perpetuity, every single time that we use the name Moshe, which is going to be a lot over the next several months, the rest of the year, beginning now, Parsha Shmos, every time we use his name, what are we saying? So Moshe Rabbeinu, oh, by the way, Paro, Bas Paro, thank you again for saving him. Hakar Satov is implicit in his name. In perpetuity, we're thanking her every time we say his name. Just like Leah was the first to really say thank you when she said, Hapam Odes Hashem, and she named her son Yehuda. How could you say she's the first to thank? She was the first to never stop thanking. Every time she used his name, Yehuda, come for dinner. Yehuda, do your homework. Yehuda, clean up your room. Every time she said his name, Yehuda, what she was saying, Yehuda, oh, by the way, thank you, Hashem, for this son. Go clean up your room. Moshe, Oh, by the way, thank you, Basparo, for the courage and the risk of saving his life. Hakar Satov. Moshe is the product of Hakar Satov. That's why his name is Moshe. He practices Hakar Satov. That's why he refuses to strike the sand or the river. And he practices Hakar Satov when he credits the Ish Mitzri. And that's what we're supposed to do as well, is to connect the dots of our lives, to always be saying thank you, to always be thanking Hashem. I asked two questions. I didn't give an answer. I'll ask a third. I won't give you the answer. Moshe Rabbeinu is described as Kvad Pen Kvad Lashon. He has a speech impediment. How do you get the speech impediment? Everyone knows the Medrash. The coal. What happened? Moshe Rabbeinu, there was concern and doubt. Is he going to be the savior of the Jewish people? Is he the one? What's going on over here? So Yisro, who was in Paro's cabinet, says, I have a suggestion. Heat up coals, and if he does something foolish, well, no, he's not the one. You don't have to feel threatened or worried about him. Paro heats up the coals, and there's a pile of hot coals, cold coals, and Moshe takes a coal from the hot pile, puts it to his tongue, to his mouth, burns his mouth forever. He's, he's kvad pen, kvad lashon. What should have happened before he burnt his mouth? He should have burnt his? Why don't we find he burnt his hand? Why don't we find he burnt his hand? His whole life, he uses his hands. He's carrying the staff. He's carrying the bones of Yosef. He's using his hands his whole life, and we never find that he's injured in his hands. Why not? Didn't he have to touch the coal before he put it to his mouth? Or was there a certain merit with his hand, and because of that merit, his hand was never injured? I leave it as a question until next time. There are flyers available on your way out. Rabbi Pesach Kron Motzei Shabbos, 8.30 p.m. 
Don't miss it. He's always inspiring. Tomorrow morning, 10 minutes, Amin Masila Sashar. I'm living with the moon 845. Tomorrow night, going behind the beam with the great A.B. Rottenberg. You don't want to miss the one as well. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.